This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Taking uh, a close look at, of course, the big banks all this week as they report their latest uh, round of earnings. Bucking the negative news once again is the big banks. It happened with Citigroup yesterday. Dave Wilson talked about it earlier. And again with J.P. Morgan, although I should point out the rally in J.P. Morgan shares definitely well off uh, their highs of the day. Let's get into uh, the results, though. Ken Leon is Global Director of Industry and Equity Research at CFRA Research. He joins us on the phone in New York. He's got a buy rating on J.P. Morgan, a sell on Wells Fargo and a hold on Bank of America. Of course, those latter two yet to come in terms of uh, the quarterly results. Hey, Ken, good to have you here with Jason and myself. So JP Morgan, uh, disappointment in fixed income like we got from Citi, but definitely outperformance there on the equity side of things. How do you see the quarter? So the capital markets is critical for all the banks and, and JP Morgan just couldn't really execute. Um, you know, it was a difficult quarter, as everyone knows, a risk-off environment, so investors didn't participate. Um, that hurt performance. Um, J.P. Morgan, excellent on credit quality. Uh, they're gaining market share in the consumer bank and credit card. Uh, the commercial loan area is another area to watch. Uh, it's very competitive. Loan growth uh, was lower than expected. Uh, we're finding that the... Um, Spreads are narrower. Uh, some of the loan covenants across the large banks is easing, uh, just because it's competitive. U.S. economy is good, but it's you know very competitive on commercial loans. And just Jason, remind me, Wells was out too, also earlier today. It's down about two and a quarter percent as we speak. Yeah, Wells Fargo, um, it, you know, trying to compete in this race with your two hands tied behind your back, which yeah. is. The Federal Reserve asset cap, uh, it takes, it, it literally freezes their total assets. It also um, distracts a lot of senior management time. So uh, there were a lot of areas that just weren't good. Um, cost measured by efficiency ratio actually went up. That's actually a bad thing. It was over 63%. Most of the large banks are 55, 57%. Um, you know, nothing really moved positively in loan growth, maybe 1%. A lot of areas were down. Um, you know, they're also getting cautious um, in terms of credit quality, so they're pairing off some of their mortgage and also uh, financial bank correspondent-type loans. Um, it just was a tough quarter for Wells Fargo. And so going back to J.P. Morgan uh, for a second, Ken, I mean, it did feel like that the stock moved, as Carol mentioned, off its session highs, but certainly moved from negative to positive, perhaps uh, on the back of Jamie Dimon's comments. What did you hear when he started addressing journalists and started addressing investors that may have boosted investor confidence here? It it almost seemed that um, December was – possibly an anomaly, Mm. you know, speaking to confidence 
uh, especially for the U.S. economy and the corporate market, uh, which feeds into their treasury and, and investment bank. I mean, that's critical. Um, you know, a lot of this will we'll see in the first quarter of 2019, which typically is one of the strongest quarters uh, for J.P. Morgan and capital markets. What about you had both City, J.P. Morgan, and Wells reporting higher ratios for net charge-offs for credit card debt. So this plays into, obviously, the consumer space. Uh, of course, this was in the fourth quarter. Um, so they relaxed their efforts as well to build up reserves. Our reporting saying that that's a sign that they don't see losses surging anytime soon. Um, and that could be read as them feeling kind of upbeat about the consumer and about the outlook that that's not going to become problematic. Do you see it that way as well? Yeah, I, I mean, that that's the area probably where there's less concern uh, in terms of consumer loans or credit card. Uh, auto loans, though, they're pretty much only approving uh, prime or super prime, letting other finance companies do the rest below. Uh, and then, you, you know, the, the home mortgage market is just difficult, mm. lower originations, you know, so that kind of handicaps the overall growth for the consumer bank. And so, Ken, as you have taken in City yesterday, J.P. Morgan Wells this morning, look ahead to Bank of America. How do they play into this? Obviously, a different type of bank uh, in some ways. What do you expect to hear from them? Well, hopefully capital markets is better. Um, it, it really hasn't been a good run so far for the first three banks. Yeah. Um, you know, Bank of America, and, and we downgraded last quarter from buy to hold, had a weak investment bank performance. Um, hopefully they'll do better in Q4. Um, they're doing extremely well in terms of um, commercial and consumer loans. Um, they don't have the global risks. Um, you know, a lot for Bank of America at this point um, is really trying to get just a little bit better execution out of the core bank and to get the capital markets um, growing. So, you know, for these large diversified banks, you just can't be a pure bank analyst. You really have to add to that focus on the capital markets. Right, right. It's a great point. Uh, Ken Leon, Global Director of Industry and Equity Research over at CFRA Research, following the big banks for us. We should note uh, that uh, CFRA downgraded its price target, lowered its price target uh, for J.P. Morgan by $15 to $110 a share following those results. So amid a very turbulent global economy, I want to make sense of what's happening, what central bankers are thinking here in the United States, as well as how investors in the high-yield market are making sense of it all. John McLean is Portfolio Manager for Diamond Hill Capital Management. He's based in Columbus, Ohio, but here with Carol and myself in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. John, nice to have you here with us on a busy day. Thanks for having me. So we're not in London. We're here in the United States trying to you know, figure out where it goes. And I have to think that something like Brexit does figure into how the central bank here in the United States, Federal Reserve, is thinking about its place in the global economy, what happens next. What's your take on the Fed right now with all of this in the background? Well, I think the Fed has been trying to get out of um, the – business of suppressing volatility 
global banks around the global central banks around the world have been trying to get out of this business, but they keep getting pulled back in by the markets and the market reactions, the violent reactions up and down. Yeah. Can well, we- and we certainly saw that. I mean, we, we essentially have seen, you know, Chair Powell kind of figure out, like, how do I talk to this market so it will just calm down a little bit, right? Well, Powell is the parent and the market is the children and, <laughs> and the market needs a little bit of discipline and, you know, they're going to go kicking and screaming. And, that, and that's really what we've seen, uh, the negative reactions to, to tightening fiscal and monetary policy uh, and the euphoric reactions uh, the other way around. I think what you've seen is quantitative easing was great for risk assets. It led to tighter spreads and lower yields. Uh, and vice versa should be too, true with quantitative tightening. All right. So what what are you anticipating for the high yield market? And I bring that up because in terms of performance, I think we were down as a group overall about 9%. I just looked at the uh, Bloomberg Barclays high yield bond ETF. We are, though, up about 3.7% this year. Does that continue? Does it continue to be something that you think an area, the high yield, that investors should be looking at? Yeah, we think of high yield actually is a solution for late cycle investing. I think what we're saying is... Uh, so we're in a late so we're in the late cycle? Absolutely. We're okay. absolutely late cycle at this point. And I think what you've seen is high yield is a very resilient asset class going into and coming out of recessions that outperforms equities on the way down and snaps back faster. You've looked at this historically, correct? Yes, How far have you gone back? What cycles have you looked at? Well, I think most importantly, people are going to look at the financial crisis. But isn't that an extreme case? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think if you go back and look at the early 2000s and the, the mid-90s, early 90s, uh, you also see the fact that because you're higher up in the capital structure, when top line growth decelerates, when margins start to contract and when multiples contract, equity takes that first. You know, for me, in theory, equity needs to be worthless before I get impaired. And so when the market uh, snaps back and we start to see top line growth again and margins expand, credit comes back first. And I think that's a good place to be. When you start the year at 8% yield and north of 500 spread, uh, that feels like a very interesting um, time to invest in high yield. Given kind of the forward projections we see on equities and the mid to high single digits from a return standpoint, if you can get that in credit with lower volatility, that seems like an interesting place to be. Let's talk, if we can, a little bit about leveraged loans, because that has caught a lot of people's attention for a number of reasons. One, people sent, seem to just rush out of that toward the end of last year. And earlier this week, uh, actually late last week, pardon me, um, we had an interview with Henry McVeigh from KKR, who notably, I mean, this is KKR, sort of the kings of leverage, essentially sure. saying, uh, leverage loans, we're a little cautious uh, there. Why the caution? What's going on uh, in the leverage loan market? There's a, there's a few things. I think we saw investors start to pile out when the view on rates went from continuing to move higher to uh, never going higher again. Right. So loans were sold as a way to protect against rates moving higher. And three-month LIBOR moved up over 200 basis points over the last couple of years. So it's been a good trade for investors to have. But now they're starting to focus on the deteriorating credit quality, higher leverage, weak covenants. Those are the things that our people are thinking about, and they don't want to be stuck in an asset class that has historically been very illiquid. You've seen an explosion of assets and mutual funds and ETFs on the loan space, and having a liquid wrapper with an illiquid asset class usually ends in tears. I'm curious about new issuance, too, in terms of high yield. What are we seeing on that front? 
It's very quiet. We've had yeah, one new issue in about 50 days or something, <laughs> uh, something to that effect. Um, and I think the interesting thing is... Is that you, good then for the existing you know, options? It's got to be, right? Because you've got to either stay out of the market or play with what you've got. Yeah, you accrue... Uh, interest daily in, in high yield. And so you're getting paid back coupons uh, and there are bonds that are getting called, tendered and maturing out. So your cash builds over time. And if you don't have new issue to deploy it into, then you've got to buy into the secondary and that helps elevate prices in that part of the market. So I think what we've seen is issuers can either tap the loan or bond market. The loan market's been red hot for years and that was cheaper financing. And that's why we've seen a larger deterioration of credit quality in that market. High yield bond managers yeah. have had to have discipline because they've had money pulled away from them. John McClain, thank you so much. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We are watching shares of Netflix uh, rallying up more than, I guess, about 7%, more than 7% at their high today, holding on to most of it as we speak. This, as the company announced, it is raising U.S. prices. It's the first increase since 2017, the largest since the streaming service began 12 years ago. Argita Ranganathan is technology media analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. She joins us from our BI headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. So, Gita, I was looking over your research. This price hike suggests what? That Netflix feels pretty confident about its subscriber base holding on to them even with a price increase? Yes, absolutely. I think it uh, very fairly and squarely demonstrates pricing power. Um, And I think the read through uh, across most of the street is that the company has confidence in its subscriber trends and its um, content lineup for 2019. Well, and it is, when you look at a, a, a... A chart of the stock. It's amazing. Shares are up more than 40% since December 24th. December 24th obviously was a low for many, many people uh, in the market, but that gain really outpaces a lot. And and we talk a lot about the separation, Carol, mm-hmm, of the mm-hmm. fangs and uh, Netflix uh, clearly uh, getting a boost here. Uh, pricing power, how are investors also feeling about costs and content investment and all those things that we look to Netflix in terms of the the, the big figures? Yes, I think, um, you know, there's obviously been a lot of concerns about, you know, their growing co- content costs, which are really reaching astronomical proportions and, and the, the ensuing cash burn issue. But I think this move, if anything, um, allays concerns uh, demonstrates that uh, demonstrates uh, a move that is very consistent with Netflix's thesis of, um, you know, fueling a virtuous cycle, uh, meaning converting uh, more content investments into consumers, which then gives them more revenue to go go out and purchase more programming. Um, so I think it's definitely a move in the right direction for for Netflix. Yeah, and I just think about like all the competition that's out there, kind of you know wanting a piece of our eyeballs, uh, if you will. And Netflix just seems uh, you know full charge ahead. Uh, who do they have to be kind of looking at over their shoulder? So the the, the the timing of the of the of the move is really interesting. Um, they have some really good momentum right now with plenty of their shows creating a lot of buzz. The latest being uh, their original film Bird Box. Right. But then they do have to contend with a lot of streaming competition flooding the market later this year. We have uh, a streaming uh, uh, offer from from Disney, Disney Plus, and there's something going to come out from Warner Media. And then just yesterday, um, Comcast, NBC also announced 
announced um, a, a free streaming service that they're going to be bringing to the market in 2020. So there are really a lot of these deep-pocketed tech giants, um, as well as media companies, who are preparing to make their move. And this, it seems like you know the, the time is right. Um, not only um, a tactical move in the sense of all of their content that's going to come, um, so uh, as well as you know for kind of fueling that. The, the, the content investments before all of the streaming competition hits. Well, it is interesting, too, and sort of teasing ahead to a story that's in the magazine about this. this week. I mean, there is a new sports uh, streaming mm-hmm. service that's going to come online, and there is this tussle, uh, as you say, uh, Gita, between some of the more, in, in some ways, established tech players like a Netflix and an Amazon and as these legacy brands like Disney uh, come on board. So what's the thing that would really, competition aside, that could really trip Netflix up at this point? Is it kind of selection of uh, hit making? Is this sort of the HBO uh, problem or are they just spending so much money that they spend through any duds? So I think, um, you know, there's obviously with any price increase, there's always fear of, you know, subscriber churn. Um, But I think, um, you know, just with there being a very modest blip last last time around in 2017 when they increased prices, I don't think they have to fear that much. Uh, But obviously, the competition is definitely going to present a problem. They're also going to have a lot of their licensed shows kind of falling off, especially all of their content from Disney, um, as well as Fox falling off by the end of 2019, which means they really need to kind of bolster um, their original content. And they're also paying really big bucks for um, some of their licensed content. We just saw that $100 million deal that they had to do for Friends. So, um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, the, the, the content cost issue, I think, continues um, yeah. to, to be a big worry, although this pricing move does alleviate a little bit of that pressure. Hey, Gita, just 20 seconds here. Do we have to be worried for Netflix uh, if we start to see a little bit of an economic downturn? Turn. Will people cut back on Netflix, or is it somewhat I, economic resistant? I don't think so. I think it's still the cheapest alternative yeah. out there in terms of entertainment. Yeah, yeah, I went to a movie recently. Man, that was not inexpensive. No, it's not inexpensive. And all those people around you. Now, what's up with I that? I love going and to movies. I can't movies. be in my I'm thinking, I'm thinking of you <laughs> wanting to be sort of comfortable pizza a night, blanky, watching pizza a movie. Night. Yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. All right. Gita Reganathan, thank you so much. She is technology media analyst covering all things Netflix for us uh, with our Bloomberg Intelligence Group. That's our in-house group of analysts joining us from our BI headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. Mr. Speaker, the House has spoken and the government will listen. It is clear that the House does not support this deal, but tonight's vote tells us nothing about what it does support. Nothing about how... Nothing about how or even if it intends to honour the decision the British people took in a referendum Parliament decided to hold. All right. Well, that was UK Prime Minister Theresa May speaking just moments ago at the Parliament in London. So what happens next? For that, we turn to John Micklethwaite, the editor-in-chief of Bloomberg. No better source for this. You came into the studio, John, and said, I think what we've been thinking, this was a stunning defeat for Theresa May and for the Conservatives. Historically speaking, it's incredible. You you do not expect a government to lose things by 200 votes. If they lose something by 10, that creates headlines. And this is a kind of wallop, especially seeing that it's something that she has spent nearly two years negotiating. 
And so from that perspective, you know, Jeremy Corbyn is absolutely right to say it is a shambles to spend all that time doing this. Um, on the other hand, many people will think that was the best deal she might have managed to get under these circumstances. John, what's happened since the June 2016 vote until today? <laughs> I mean, I know a lot it's has a happened. It's a comedy. It's a comedy of errors. I, I, looking back, you know, the big one big mistake. She made two big mistakes. One was to declare Article 50, which basically started the... Um, the, the, the clock running and the difficulty about that is that that meant that the Europeans could just sit there and I say Europeans, obviously the British are Europeans but the continental Europeans could sit there knowing that the clock was always against her rather than she didn't try to negotiate anything before declaring that and the other one is she kept on saying for a very long time um, no deal is better than a bad deal when everyone knew that no deal would be extremely difficult right. and she did nothing to prepare for it so suddenly now the British government is desperately trying to work out what would happen if we didn't have any open border with France or indeed with Ireland and trying to work out exactly what that does. And that puts her in a bad position. And so from a negotiating point of view, the British didn't get much. And they got, she would claim that she got broadly what most people cared about above all else, which was immigration. Right. She got a limit on that. But this thing of the Irish backstop has completely bedeviled her. Right. And when you look at the market reaction, we were noting this also as you, as you walked in the studio, it's been somewhat muted. I, I think it's very bizarre is that when, obviously, um, if I was a currency trader, I wouldn't be sitting here. But right. on the basis of that, you, you look and the pound plummeted on this vote, which makes some sense, but then immediately rebounded right. sharply the other way. And what seems to be happening is the markets are being Machiavellian and deciding that this is such an awful defeat that it will force her to come up with some kind of new deal um, or indeed that there may be a second referendum. And that's sort of true, but the basic fact is that this is a rotten result and that you know, in, this could be when we look back and say, what on earth were the markets thinking? Surely if Parliament can't agree, not just by a small margin, but by 200 votes, we might drift towards a no-deal Brexit. Mm. So what does happen from here? Do we, do we get you know, a no-deal Brexit? Do we get a second referendum? What happens to well, first of Well, first of all, we have to survive, and she has to survive, even more importantly, right. um, the uh, vote of no confidence, which happens tomorrow. This is not a vote of no confidence in her, personally. Um, it is a vote of no confidence in her government. And that is going to be tabled by Labour, and I think they will be hoping wildly that some... Tory MPs who are so annoyed with Mrs May will join them but that seems highly unlikely her well, government is propped up by Tories, Conservatives, her own party and the Democratic Unionist Party from Northern Ireland and they disagree about some things like the, right. the, the backstop in Ireland but the one thing which is clear is that the DUP has very little sympathy with Jeremy Corbyn who was as we all know famously uh, um, at least close to the, to the people like the IRA. He, right. was, he, was, he was on the other side of the Irish divide. Right. Perhaps and, with the Kellys. And, and, <laughs> and, and I want to dig in on that point because there was a really smart uh, post from Roz Matheson, one of our colleagues who runs all of our international government coverage, on the blog where she essentially said Corbyn would need some Tories, as you said, to essentially vote against themselves in yeah, this vote of no confidence. If you're, a Tory, if you're a Tory or you're a DUP, essentially this would be, you know, Turkey's voting for Christmas. The, the Conservatives, if they actually let a vote go ahead under these circumstances, um, they would stand a high chance of losing it. it. It is, again, in the mad, mad world of British politics, the fact that the Labour Party is led by Jeremy Corbyn, 
one of the least electable human beings, <laughs> it would appear from the outside, makes it much more difficult. Because if the Labour Party was led by, say, David Miliband, who's around the corner from us in New York, but not right. doing things, or even by Keir Starmer, the, the, the pro, uh, pro-Europe sort of Brexit secretary in Labour, it's very hard to imagine they would not be miles ahead in the polls. But because they're led by Jeremy Corbyn and they have what, by American standards, would be described as an ultra-far-left agenda, there are still a lot... At the moment, Theresa May, despite you know what is fairly obviously a very incompetent government, right. is ahead. So, OK, so assumes she survives the survives no-confidence the no then, then, then Then she's coming back with various deals. Um, and it seems... Hasn't she already to, come back, though, with lots no, of No, but she, she will then go... So a degree of shuttling backwards and forwards will happen. Uh, the limit here is that Parliament is beginning you know, pretty much for the first time since you have to go back to the days of Charles I, where you know, Parliament suddenly started superseding the government, and that was not a terribly happy history because it led to Oliver Cromwell and the end of Charles I. But what is happening now is that suddenly... Parliament is beginning to intervene, and one of the motions they put down on her is that she cannot... She has to come back with another new deal within three days. Well, that makes things really quite difficult for her, because she's not likely to get major concessions from the Europeans. The Europeans will give her a little bit here or there, but the guess is nothing dramatic. And that's the other component, right? Because the European Union has to agree on stuff too, right? Yeah, the European Union has two points. One One is one of genuine practicalness you know they they don't want to give things away that they would regret just to keep somebody who's leaving you it's a bit like a divorce where someone's heading off and you say no no please take the garage as well as the house um but the second thing is that they that there is that point they don't want to do anything that encourages other members of the european union to think that leaving it is a picnic right and uh, to be fair on that point i think it's now fairly well established that leaving the european union is not a particularly easy process not a lot the british have managed to achieve that if nothing else Right. Not a lot of picnicking going Ch- on. Cross uh, it off there. the list. Absolutely. <laughs> John Micklethwaite, uh, editor-in-chief of Bloomberg, we really appreciate you spending some time. No one knows more in this newsroom uh, than you do and has followed it more closely. And I have to say, I go back to that column that you did, The 20% World. You called it. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Leon Lebrecht is with us. He's Chief Growth Officer at Sequoia Financial Group, uh, based in Rochester, Michigan, in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Is it like a heat wave coming here? Oh, yeah. It's really nice. <laughs> <laughs> love it, love it's it. cold there. You know, it's funny. I, I, we love when we get to talk to people from, you know, all walks of life here and around the country. And I am just curious. We were talking a little bit about what's going on in Michigan. And, you know, I feel like Detroit has been a story we constantly watch in terms of the revival. Tell us a little bit about kind of the economy and what you're seeing and what it tells you about maybe about the bigger, broader economy around the country. Great. Um, Michigan's a great comeback story. We're, we're doing great. Uh, is it, it really? Detroit is an amazing comeback story. A restaurant a week, we're opening in Detroit. The real estate values are some of the highest values in terms of appreciation rates anywhere in the country. And if I told Coming you, from a very low base. From a very from low a base. To be, indeed, it's like coming yeah. off the bottom of a market and yeah. you, get a, you get a nice increase. But um, the cost of doing business is extremely low. 
We have fresh water abounding. We have infrastructure. We have technology. We have great universities all over the place. So we have a sound transportation system. And literally, if I do a 900-mile circle around Detroit, I cover about 60% of the population in the United States. Wow. So lots of things going Wait, on Wait, say that again? There, if, if you draw a 900-mile circle around Detroit, you're covering roughly about 60% of the population. Amazing. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot. So you can get to them. You can get to people. Right. So we have infrastructure. We've moved away from cars somewhat. Yeah. But still, Michigan produces 20% of the cars in the United States. Um, the what car- else is in the economy that's interesting in, we in have, Michigan? We have high tech. Um, we have some high tech and biotech. So those things are coming into play. And then the, the infrastructure, the change of the auto business is really amazing. Mm-hmm. What we're seeing is autonomous vehicles. Yeah. And we have a whole autonomous vehicle section. Ford Motor Company just bought the train station, and they're redoing that whole thing to a vehicle autonomy. We're doing, we have sections of the road that talk to the car. Yeah. So the, the cars of the future are being built there, but that same technology can apply to other things as well. So we're seeing like the electric scooters, lots of things. Right. You know, one of the things, you know, speaking of Detroit, and, and we started when you came in before we came on the air talking about the auto show there, and our David Weston was there yesterday, had some great interviews, including with Roger Penske and, and others. But, you know, one of the things that David told me on air yesterday was this notion that trade, tariffs, all of it still, and maybe not surprisingly, front of mind for everybody at that right. auto show. Help us understand from an investor perspective how you think about it, because I, I have to confess, and, and maybe Carol disagrees, I haven't gotten a really good answer from somebody as to how an investor should be thinking about tariffs and trade at this point. If, if we were in a Holly Smoot trade uh, situation like we were in the 30s, where mm-hmm. this was a blanket tariff, reciprocal tariff all the way around the world, uh, I would tell you as an economist, this is death. This is, this yeah. is really bad. We're in really bad shape. If we're looking at this, what it appears to be, which is a political movement to get something moved off a dead center, then the tariffs have a lot less. So if we have a a quasi-NAFTA situation Mm -hmm. where, oh, we're going to tear up NAFTA and throw it away. And I've read the old NAFTA and the new NAFTA because being in Michigan, I have lots of people in the car industry. They're not that different. So there's, there's a lot of similarity to old and new NAFTA. If the old China and the new China trade agreements come back to not so different, then it's not as bad. Really, though? But shouldn't we be rethinking? I mean, we've done a lot of stories, certainly in the magazine, Business Week magazine, that's looking at what China is focusing on. And maybe we do need to look at China differently when it comes to trade. Uh, They're really trying to move ahead in terms of high tech. Mm -hmm. Uh, You think of AI, a lot of people would say you think of China first before you think of the United States. So maybe we need to rethink how we approach and our relationship with China. We need them, right? Most global companies will say, we need them. Nope, we need them for sure. We need them and they need us. And probably they need us more than we need them. Now. Now, and and they clearly will change. That will change. I I think this out, do a thought experiment with me. Let's suppose we, the Chinese put warships off the coast of California. What do you think would happen? We would go crazy. Right. But we have warships off their coast. I mean, what do you think would happen if the Chinese started dictating and said, well, we're going to impose tariffs on you because, you know, we don't like the fact that you're not buying enough Chinese goods. I mean, it's just if we reciprocate it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So I don't disagree that we really have to rethink China. And I, I think a telling tale is the Chinese put the first probe on the dark side of the moon. You know, despite what Pink Floyd that wanted story, to do. That story, that was the other story I was going to bring up with you. That kind of blew my mind. I also saw another story today. Um, actually, this is the story I was going to bring up with you, Jason, is that I think they were growing something on the moon. I don't know if I read it wrong. But I just, mm-hmm. I feel like we constantly keep seeing these little stories about what they are doing in kind of the super high-tech world. Right. That is their emphasis, even right. though we're worried about selling more soybeans to them. Oh, we th- and we're, so thinking, and so- we're thinking 10 years ago, aren't we? Yeah. yeah. Right? They, they put a satellite on the other 
side so it could bounce the signal so they could communicate. Correct. They had to put they had to create a satellite to create. I mean, this is NASA stuff from the '60s, right? Right. Where we're going, we have to create supercomputers so we can figure out the stri- the, the trajectory. Yeah. I mean, it was crazy. So um, I would say that we should definitely not undercut where China's going. And we shouldn't even undercut on the more fundamental things like commodities. I mean, China has most of the world supply of cobalt and is actually, by their work in Africa, cornering the world supply on lithium. And, and the interesting part is because it is a, state's, a state-run capitalism, right. they can do what they want to do. So they say, we want all the cobalt capitalism in the world. Capitalism with uh, parentheses Capital with it. the quote, hand quotes around it. Yeah. 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 So they can go get all the cobalt or they can go get all the lithium and they can put all the ports in and they can have you know, the billion people in Africa working with them. Yeah, it's mind-blowing. Here's the story. Chinese scientists say they, say they have grown the first plants on the moon as part of the country's lunar mission. You know, who knows, what knows, whatever. But it just the emphasis of what we know China is up to in terms of their mission five years, ten years from now, uh, kind of laying the ground for where they want to be supreme. They make... 10-year plans and 100-year plans. Right. right. And I think we don't think that way. I think that's part of the issue. So they can say, we want to dominate. I mean, from the car business, we're looking at it that they're going to dominate the electric car business because they're going to own all the batteries. Right. So got to ask you about the shutdown because that is very much uh, front of mind, even though it's been uh, overtaken today, it feels like, largely by Brexit and you know other uh, headlines, but still in a record shutdown. Yep. Does that start to play through the economy in a way that it's meaningful to investors and if so when so the shutdown is exponential if imagine i said a company laid off 800,000 people for 25 days that'd be gigantic news we'd all yeah. be sitting there going right. oh my gosh what's the effect on the economy oh yeah and 4 million subcontractors look at what sears got right right, right. when they were trying to shut down and you know everybody was trying to figure out how to you know help out these workers oh it's crazy look right. what gm got just for laying off 10,000 people and yeah. actually they didn't lay them off they moved them to other plants right, right. so take that and say 800 4.8 million people out of work so it does have an economic effect and probably i think all shutdowns have to end sometime. So some either eleven senators will change or one person in the White House will change, but somebody's gonna somebody's gonna change their tune. Some of that'll be bounced back and some of it won't, but probably the most important thing to investors is it should start telling us of what we do in a late economy, a late economic cycle. Yeah. We are in late economic cycle and it's time to start planning. You know, we should do a gut check, we should do a budget, we should do these things. And it's it's unfortunately the illustrative feature of something bad happening. Yeah. Like when there's fires in California, I say, well, you should take a selfie of your house. People go, wow, you're a good idea. And right. if, if I say, you know, th- think of what I said, right. being working for the government was risky. <laughs> right? This was Amazing. so much fun. Come back. Okay. Please do. Leon Lebrack, he's chief growth officer at Sequoia Financial Group, based in Rochester, Michigan, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Stick around. We've got the closing bell in just a moment. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.